Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week we talk with Jeffrey Tucker, the editorial director at the American Institute for Economic Research. And the theme this week is love. Markets love you. Free market capitalism is the only way that free people come together and cooperate and do beautiful things and, yes, love each other. Check it out. Uh, is is the liberty scene in DC still kind of kind of a thing? Is it? Uh, I know it went through some troubles there for a few years. I mean, the liberty movement in general has gone through a lot of troubles since over the last five years. It's been a mess. Thank God for free the people. It's it's we're the only thing left, the remnant. How is the sound? Sounds good, man. Okay. We were all queued up for the previous one, so all the levels are set. We're ready to go. Okay. Oh, look at this. Okay. Cool. You ready to roll? I'm ready to roll. Jeffrey Tucker. Finally, you're in the studio. So glad to be here, Matt. It's very exciting. Yeah. And you'll notice my homage. Ah, I love I, it. I call it Jeffrey Tuckerism. There's, uh, <laughs> and, and maybe you borrowed this from Murray. I don't know where you got the look from. You know, I, I didn't. But, but, uh, but there's this funny remark in John T. Malloy's book on... Uh, Dress for success. And it was something like from the early 70s. He said, um, how to dress for job interviews. And he said, whatever you do, don't wear a bow tie. Everyone will think you're a bomb thrower. <laughs> so, so you're so like, I think, well. So I think there's, there tends to be a, a kind of a connection between bow, bow ties and, and radicalism in some way. I don't know. Malcolm X. Yeah, I started wearing one when I was 16. I was working in the in the men, in a men's store, and we got a shipment of them. And I put one on, and I thought, "This is great. It doesn't flop around. It doesn't get into your soup. That's it." So, but once you start wearing one, then you're stuck, you know. Yeah. But yeah, Murray wore a bow tie. I have several of Murray's bow ties, actually. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Are they in a proper? They uh, are. protective the, case. Mm-hmm, they are. Yeah, I treasure them. I truly do. Joey, his his. Uh, uh, widow gave them to me, and and Murray and I were friends for ten years, and I love Murray very much, so I treasure those bow ties. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the the. It's not so hot off the presses anymore. This book has been out for a couple couple months. I guess a couple of months. Yeah. The market loves you. Why you should love it back. Yeah. Um, I thought this was one of your best books. Thank you. You know. I think it is, too. I'm most famous, of course, for Bourbon for Breakfast. And I look back at that. I'm not embarrassed by the book. I, I enjoy reading sections of it. Some of it I would change. But, you know, you're a writer. You know what it's like. You, I could never rewrite anything I've done in the past. And I, I hardly ever approve of anything I've ever done in the past. And the only article I really like is the one I just finished today. You know yeah. that feeling? Yeah, yeah. But I actually agree with you. I think this is my best work. Yeah. You know that you, you describe this in one of the chapters, the the, the journey of, of finding meaning and, and how uh, uh, Marxists say that, um, you know, you can't get that through markets and exchange and stuff like that. But I, I think it's exactly the opposite, that yeah. that that striving and that struggle and that, that discomfort that you get trying to write a book. And it's not it's not always fun, right? It's no. it's like, is this going to even work or do yeah. I need to throw it out and start over? Yeah, and but you also have to find yourself, and that's actually that's actually a hard thing for an author is to get over the fear of your audience. You know, yeah. this is what stops people from writing well. You know, they're afraid to bleed 
they're afraid to be fully honest. They're, they're, they're performing in a way. And then you, and once you start thinking you're performing, then you wonder, who am I performing for? Mom, my, my pastor, my girlfriend, you know, my boss. And once you do that, then you've got a filter that blocks your way to the audience, to the reader. You've got to figure out how to translate what's truly in, in your heart filtered through your brain into somebody else's psyche and, and understanding and do that in the most direct, honest, sincere way possible, especially these ways. Readers can always detect insincerity. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're sophisticated now. Readers are very sophisticated. So you've got to get over that and just be as truthful as you possibly can. I think sincerity and truthfulness and knowledge and understanding are all the, the keys to writing well, I think. And also finding finding the right words. And this, it, there is a little bit of awareness as, as a libertarian, as an Austrian economist, we use all sorts of obscure language. Sometimes I think it's designed specifically to, to chase people away. <laughs> and, and what you've done here is you've told human stories. Yeah. Yeah. And these are these are, you don't have to be an Austrian economist no, to read this right. book. Well, and that's one of the things I've dropped over the years is in the early days I would throw around these complicated vocabulary terms that were unique to econ speak as a way of sort of showing off I know my stuff. As you as I've gotten older as the years have gone I I've dropped that stuff and I I try to speak in in normal language. Sometimes it's a little bit uh, floral and and Latin aid, you know, I'm always drawn to that sort of thing. But I try not to use industry-based buzzwords. I'm glad you brought up that point about meaning, by the way. I think I opened that, that chapter up on meaning um, with this question that was asked me. What do you think is the main objection to markets? And people have lots of objections to markets. But I think that, that this issue of meaning is really, um, really important because... You know, the left thinks that through that Marxian paradigm that we're, that the marketplace alienates us. You know, our jobs alienate us. We're alienated from our commercial work. You can't really love what you do, really. You do what you, you, do, what you do to survive. And then, um, but there's a, a terrible struggle at the, at the root of that. You know, you hate your boss. Uh, capital's exploiting you. You're, you're losing your surplus value and so, and so on. So your job alienates you. And then the, the right has a separate tale of this, you know, that meaning comes through. Terrifying things like exercising uh, courage on the battlefield or uh, loathing your enemy, being a, a collective on the march, a homogeneous tribe, you know, moving through history. They, they have this big drama story they want meaning to consist of. And they, and they you know, a guy like Carl Schmidt, I, who I talk about, they... They uh, see the marketplace as uh, silly. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's just nothing other than fripperies it's and not big barbecues. Enough. Yeah, it's not, it's big, not big, enough. big enough. It's not big enough to make a tale of life. So, so you've got nowadays both sides just angry at the market all the time, denouncing the market, blaming it for everything. And you can you listen to interviews with, um, I mean, Tucker Carlson and and um, and Bernie Sanders sound a lot alike these days. Yeah. you know. Yeah. So yeah, this book is designed to to be a counter to that. And I, I'm dealing realistically with the, with the real encounters we experience in our lives, our, our friendship networks, um, the things we learn from our first jobs, the personal and impersonal encounters we have through the marketplace. For all the goods we purchase are built by the cooperative 
adventures of millions of people and so on. Uh, I think, and, and look, it wasn't hard for me to write. It, it was only hard in the following sense. I had to just be really honest with my own views. Yeah. That's it. I just had to like, I'm a little bit of an emotional person anyway. <laughs> you know, we've known each other for a long time. So I just tried to be myself. That's it. You know, this this may be offensive to you, but I was as I was reading this, particularly the first couple chapters, where you're sort of you're essentially laying out the moral case yeah. for um, owning your own life and and yeah. taking risk and 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 defining yourself. And it reminded me of a Kiss concert that I went to a couple years ago. Stay with me here. This <laughs> makes sense in a minute. And this was. Uh, um, in, in the midst of all this political tumult and, and everybody's angry at each other and there's wars and there's starvation and all that. And Paul Stanley gets up to the microphone. He's like, there's so many troubles out there. Just so many troubles. And he, and he, he goes, he lists the litany of politics and war and all that. And you're waiting for a lecture and it said, we're not going to talk about any of that. Isn't that this is not why we're here tonight. Yeah. We're here to rock. Yeah. And, and, what this book does is, it, I mean, you, you, you reference all sorts of, of odious ideologies and, and totalitarian disasters, but it's really about the, the, the beautiful case for freedom mm-hmm. and markets and individual destiny, that yeah, yeah. defining themselves. The formation and we don't of tell commu- that story enough. No, we don't. It's a formation of communities. And I'm glad you brought up the concert environment, um, by the way, because I think you and I have different sort of outlooks on on music and stuff. But, you know, the concert settings do this. They bring together these interesting communities of people. You've, a lot of you have know, never met these people before. And there's, there's magic, not just on the stage, but a lot of it is just being in this group of people that are celebrating the same thing together. And you look around and, and you're like, wow, you like Taylor Swift too? I like Taylor Swift. Oh, you know that song? I know that song and so on, you know? Sometimes I wonder, Matt, and I wasn't around for um, Woodstock, right? But something happened. We don't entirely know what happened. You know, you can read big histories about it. But it's very possible that at that moment, our culture discovered in its fullest possible way the capacity of creating a community outside what our political leaders were telling us to do. Yeah. Until that time in history, there was always some leader forming us into a community, whether it was Wilson or, or, uh, uh, or FDR. Oh, we as a nation are going to do the following thing. And then it was Johnson, and now we're going to go to war. And, oh, and, or, 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 um, you know, it was always a big national project. At Woodstock, you discovered that you didn't need these people. You know, that these these performers could get on stage and you could be around people and just unite around the themes of love and music and fun. And, and that that was in a more important source yeah. of joy yeah. in your life than anything that was being preached on the national media and by our national politicians. Do you think there's anything to that? Oh, I, th- I think it's everything. And I've I've talked a lot about the Grateful Dead. I'm a deadhead. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but all of the bands. Yeah, you know more a lot more about this. Than I, do. Yeah. I sound like a novice. Over all, here. all of the all of the bands that I love, and I have a very disparate sense of, of musical taste. And um, but the Grateful Dead are a great example of this. And and of course that whole that whole scene. Um, you know, Jerry Garcia was an anarchist. He didn't want to tell anybody what to do, mm-hmm. but refusing not to dictate to his community the terms of their relationship created a profoundly robust community mm. and it was all circled around a 
uh, commercial exchange, right? Yes, without copyright. I, we right. don't have to go into that, but that's really important. He encouraged people to, the Grateful Dead encouraged recordings, right? Take, one, take, take my music. Uh, one rule, you can't sell it, you have to share it. Oh, and if you share it, and it was, uh, it, was a, it was a radical form of marketing, there's actually yeah. business textbooks on, on the, the Grateful Dead marketing platform, which, which was respect for the customer and a sense of community. Yeah. And that, that to me, like this this theme, you've never been to a dead show, I'm guessing. No. But this theme runs throughout your no, entire No, world. no, I, but you experience it, and this is what commerce does for us. And I don't even like the word commerce, although it does have uh, Latin roots on commercium, and uh, there is a very interesting s- story associated with that, actually. Uh, uh, commerce and love are related. Yeah. Uh, th- theologically, in in the in, in medieval Latin, uh, medieval uh, Western uh, religion, um, that there is supposed to be a commercial exchange between eternity and time that produced the incarnation, for example. Okay, so a, a, an exchange of value, um, so that you're better off as a result. And to me, that's a, a miracle, and that miracle is around us, you know, everywhere. One of the main themes that comes, and I really want to get back to the concert thing because I have something to tell you you won't believe. Uh, but wh- one of the um, main themes that uh, uh, that this book is about is is our desire to be valued. Yeah. We take that for granted, you know, because we are surrounded by people who value us. You know, our coworkers, our bosses, they do. Um, You're that? Our, our, yeah. <laughs> Are you buying that? No, you know, to, to 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 bring value into the into the into any kind of setting and have somebody look at you and say, you know, um, I value you as a person, um, and therefore I'm going to grant you the dignity that you have, and I'm going to inspire you. Uh, this is this is the stuff of life. And if you've ever known a young person who ever uh, who has his or her first job, you experience that for the very first time. There's an ebullient happiness associated with the fact that you're able to go in there and serve, develop a skill, and then get money for it. I mean, that is a that's life affirming. There's be, like there's um, like purpose not, and yeah. belonging, meaning, meaning. It's not alienating for yeah. God's sake. It's exactly the the opposite. I discovered this actually for the first time when I and I tell this big story of going to jail look I was only in there one day but but it was a terrifying moment for me because I remember being behind bars it was a traffic ticket I didn't pay what kind of thing but I was behind bars total thug life yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how I got street credit <laughs> but I, I suddenly did have a sense that everybody who loves me and cares about me is external to me and they don't have any control over me I don't have any access to them and everybody who did control my life they didn't care anything about me and so I asked the time of the uh, the warden or whoever happened to be passing by and she looked through me as if I didn't exist, you know, yeah. like I was a skeleton. She could barely even, she couldn't even look at my eyes. She just looked through me. Um, and that was a strange sense because I realized that day that if we weren't involved in the commercial marketplace, if we, we weren't in a position to be valuable to other people um, and then to value other people, and in return, that that exchange of of love that's part of the marketplace, we would despair. Yeah, we would not not just um, in a year's time or in a month's time, but really in in a matter of hours. And um, that's why 
it was, I think, there that I, I came up with this thesis that the market really is about opportunities for us to uh, encounter each other um, in loving ways. And there's many different levels of love, you know, and I, that's why I invoke C.S. Lewis, who wrote a, a book about this. But it can it's, be. It's the best chapter by the way. Uh, thank you. The, yeah, one, wow. the one people must read. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about friendship or just, just discovering people. I mean, just think about the last time you went to a restaurant and you liked your waiter and you tipped 25% and you had this interesting encounter with a person you've never met before, but there's something about them that struck you the right way and you appreciated being valued by them. I mean, even that moment when you sit down and somebody comes up to you and says, good evening, welcome to such and such. Uh, I'll introduce uh, our specials tonight in a little bit, but would anyone like a cocktail? There's just that moment where you, f you feel it. You suddenly feel loved, you feel appreciated, and it just does, it comes over you. That's why we go to restaurants. You know, just that, that desire to be appreciated for who we are, you know? And then you appreciate them in return. It's it's. And, and, those, and those encounters are around us everywhere. Yeah, and that's that's the basis of, of millions, infinite number of, of commercial transactions. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, because ultimately there's there's a trade happening, yeah, yeah. Um, and and both people are being made made better f from that trade. But it it's not just markets clearing. There's something there's something more profound going on there. Something it's it's mutual value creation that. That, that mutual thank you, thank you, that, that is uh, embedded in every market exchange. But it's also, um, and this gets us back to the point about the concerts, it's about the formation of community also. Uh, we do like the idea of community, I think. You know, there's this, there's this rap on libertarianism that it's, it's all about that autonomous individualism or wh whatever people claim, but... But the concerts. We've, I mean, we've earned a little bit of that. <laughs> probably, yeah. yeah. Probably we've earned everything everybody's ever said about us. But, but that concert setting is interesting. And I'm sorry to take us back slightly to the Grateful Dead, but I wanted to give you an example of um, what happens in the Berkshires in New England at Tanglewood. Now, this is not the Grateful Dead. This is, this is Beethoven and Schubert. Yeah. 5,000 people gather almost every night on the lawn of Tanglewood and listen in silence to Beethoven and Schubert and Mozart and Copeland and um, the affection for each other in that setting is probably comparable to a Grateful Dead situation. There's something about the mixture of art and commerce and community. That's a magic that no state has ever in the history of the world been yeah. able to manufacture on its own There's through its slogans and its ideologies. It's all nonsense. There's, there's, there's magic in that because, because all of the things that we believe that classical liberalism does, it, it tears down barriers, tribal barriers, racial barriers, yeah. national barriers, yeah. um, stratus barriers. Uh, if you go to any concert, and, and really any, any sort of crowdsourced bottom-up gathering where people right. gather in a, common a, a purpose. The farmer's market on the weekend. Yeah. That's a great scene. My goodness. And, and you get like, it's not just anonymous. There's there's a sense of of, of yeah. you're you're with your friends even though you've never met any of them before. And yeah. when I'm at a dead show, I can I can engage anyone in a conversation about the dead, and they're so enthusiastic, irrationally exuberant about the 
700 version of one song they've heard. It's <laughs> so fun. But the, the level of expertise yeah. you encounter in those in those settings. Yeah, I remember being at Tanglewood and a guy, we were listening to Mahler's Fifth Symphony in silence, 5,000 of us on a lawn. Can you imagine? And a guy had an I love Mahler shirt. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like heart. It's, you it's, know. It's, it's the very long end of the tale. Of, of the internet right there. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I just walked up to him and I said, listen, I love Baller too. And it was one of those classic Mahler conversations. What do you think about the fifth? Oh, I'd love the fifth, but the sixth? Oh, who can do without the sixth? Yeah, but there is the third. Well, of course there's a third. And so on it goes for <laughs> yeah. 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I, I want to get back to the, the chapter about the market is love, but mm-hmm. you're, you're reminding me of the, the Uber story that you tell. You're, you're stuck in a train station in the middle of nowhere, Massachusetts. No, no offense to where the AIER castle well, that, is. That was, that was the, the Hudson train station, Okay, which I just, I, I, I love the Hudson train station. It's just so old fashioned. I mean, like it's one of those places you, 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 you walk into and you, you kind of, if you have a good imagination, you can imagine a man over in the corner reading a newspaper complaining about Grover Cleveland or something. I mean, there's 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 an there's an antique quality to the whole place. I mean, like literally a sign that says tickets with with metal bars above it, and there's some crabby old guy sitting there with a hat on. You know, it's just a perfect picture yeah. of like the interwar period or maybe Victorian age or something, Gilded Age. Um, but anyway, one day I was with some interns. Yeah, and we we came in very very late, and and a snowstorm came, and it was it was terrible. Um, and we didn't really have a ride, and, so, and it was a 45-minute trip you know, yeah. to get back to the house, and and I was so grateful for, um, and we kept trying the Uber app, and it was, it was nobody came, and then finally, yes, we did get an Uber driver, but he was, it was very interesting, because on the way back to the house, in the middle of this terrible snowstorm, and I was imagining that we were going to have to spend the night there uh, on benches, um, but he th- he told us that he was sitting with his wife in a warm house watching Netflix, and he got the first request and went, Meh. got second request and went, who needs it? Third request came in. He thought, you know, there's some people in trouble. Yeah, I need to take care of them. And uh, drove 20 minutes through the snow, a harrowing trip to pick us up, and took us took us to the house. 45 minutes away, and uh, what did he earn for that? You know, $8 or something? I gave him a gigantic um, tip as a result, but you know, I, I reflected on that. It's like, you know, this combination of technology, charity, human affection, commerce, all coming together to save us from what would have been real trauma. No state was involved. No politicians made that possible. Just this beautiful magic of the marketplace. It's not magic. It's it really, it's love. It's love. Many levels of love. Super deep. International. Global global commerce made that moment possible. And it's, it's hard to imagine a uh, scenario where coercion <laughs> would have gotten that guy to leave his warm home and his wife right. in order to help a stranger. Yeah, that's right. And it gets back to that sort of uh, anonymous sense of connection yeah. that, that commerce seems to create. It was, it, and, I ref, and I'm so glad you asked about this because I think about that man right now. And like, the only way I could really thank him was by giving him a big tip. But if he were here right now, I would give him a big hug. You know, like he made a huge difference in my life. Yeah. 
And that night I really, I was so grateful for him. And the next day, you know, we just forget about things like that. But I didn't want to forget about it, which is why I wrote it up, you know. Those are important moments in life. Yeah. Very important. So why why don't libertarians tell more stories like this? We 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 tend to, to come off and, yeah. and, you know, I'm heavily influenced by Ayn Rand and, and her sense of yeah. individual individuality. Um, but, you know, her characters did tremendous sacrifices to save society, to save their unknown neighbors. Um, they really wanted to make sure that... Rand's characters, you mean? To, yeah, to make through... Oh, yeah. Um, tremendous sacrifice, particularly in Atlas Shrugged. Well, sure, but even in Fountain, in Fountainhead, and she I mean, she would be angry at me if I said that. But but and she herself made tremendous sacrifices actually to right. serve humanity. So I don't I don't know about this whole anti altruism thing that she has going. I mean, it's fine, but um, but it's, it doesn't show up in her books actually. Yeah, I mean, these people uh, serve each other and they serve principle with courage. But you asked the question about libertarianism. I've made this analogy, and since we, we keep returning to this musical theme, I think what happens to people from the pro-commerce, pro-market, free market uh, point of view is that we, we learn the principles, and we learn the, the axioms, and we learn the theory, and it's hard for us to get beyond that uh, for some reason. We never actually apply it. It would be like going to a, a, a piano competition and having people uh, get up to uh, the Steinway and everybody plays arpeggios and scales, not actual music. Yeah, and that's that's who we, that's how we do. We just sit around, but we we can't stop talking about our arpeggios and our scales. But the point of learning your scales and your arpeggios is to is to play music finally, to leave the page, to leave the theory. My trombone teacher used to say this. He said, "Learn all your scales, learn all your arpeggios, learn everything you need to know." and then forget it all and play music. Part of me thinks that that's what we need to do. We need to forget it all yeah. and just and just explain what the beauty and the majesty and the magic and the love of human liberty. So let's let's go back to the chapter on love because there's there's commercial love and yeah. I'm I'm butchering the the Latin you can you can walk Commercial, us, yeah. You can walk us through all that but right. but Markets get us further. Markets create what what most people watching would say. That's that's what I understand love to be. <laughs> yes, I'm having to roll through it because there are four kinds of love I discussed there. But you're speaking about the fourth kind. Yeah, and I associate that with with enterprise or what's what's the French from the French term uh, entrepreneurship, which is an act of faith. It's to imagine something that doesn't exist, but you believe that the world would be better off with it. Like you wake up every morning and you think this world is lacking in my idea. I can see the world could be a better place. If I, if I could just make this thing come true. St. Paul calls it the evidence of of, of of things unseen, you know, like this. Um, it's an act of faith. Like yeah. you see the world as a different place, but it's not yet there. And so you act on it. And this is what entrepreneurship is essentially: is if if you've ever created anything, you created free the people. I'm sure that you spent 
many um, nights sleepless uh, seeing what free the people could do. You know, what, what the difference it could make in the world that is lacking is something that was like a burning passion. It's actually like a little bit crazy. Yeah. It's crazy just like um, love is crazy. It's crazy beautiful. Yeah. That might have been the phrase you used. It yeah. was um, beautifully insane or yeah. something well, like it's, that. Well, it's, you know, like, and I, I hope I'm, I'm not alienating our, our listeners here, but when I, when I say that if you've ever been in love, there is a difference. Yes, there's nothing physical about the world that's changed, except yeah. that except that everything seems different to you. Suddenly, yeah. you hear the birds singing. The flowers are extra beautiful. Um, you hop down the street in a different kind of way. Everything delights you. You know, love is is like a it's a drug. It's 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 like our uh, absinthe. You know, it's our wormwood. You know, it it makes us nuts. It makes us make crazy sacrifices. It, it challenges us to to do things we shouldn't do, like try to change the world, which is not likely going to succeed. But we can't help ourselves anyway. That is a special kind of love, and I think it's it's at the very heart of entrepreneurship. And if you've ever known any 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 business people, and I don't mean just billionaires, I mean anybody who's ever started or done anything, they're always consumed with this this desire to to make a dent in the universe, to make an impression, to to realize the importance of their own lives by by changing the narrative of history. Yeah. And that is the way we progress. And if you think about it, you know, what that means is that, that love is the basis of human progress. I really believe that. But in order to exercise that love, to act on it, to use your volition to change the world, you have to, in the very first instance, have the freedom to do so. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the basis of everything. Like, it's not enough to have love. You have to have the freedom to act on that love, too. We have to have both things together. And if you give more freedom, you very well might inspire more love, you know? So, so speaking of love, I love Frederick Hayek. <laughs> and one of the spontaneous traditions that has emerged on this show, apparently is that I, I quote Hayek a lot, which, which is, a, is a malady that, that we libertarians have. We, yeah. we have to quote Austrian economists. And apparently people will uh, get a cocktail every time I quote Hayek. So um, <laughs> cheers. Cheers. Cheers to Hayek. And this, and this, is, a, this is a bait That's and crystal, switch yeah. because I'm, I'm going to quote Mises and not Hayek. Mm. And I don't think I've done this on the show. I've done it a lot. Um, my favorite... Quote from Human Action, Ludwig von Mises' magnum opus, is about exactly what you're talking about, the, the entrepreneurial urge. Mm. And he, there's this great passage, and I almost have it memorized, where he talks about how the entrepreneur sees the past just like everybody else. Everybody can look backwards and see oh, yeah, yeah. the way that things were. But the entrepreneur is different because he can see around the corner of history and mm. imagine something that doesn't exist. And they, they become obsessed. They become... He says this. Yes. I, I will okay. send you the quote. Okay. And, and so I probably just took it from Jesus. He, yeah. do, he doesn't say... He doesn't use the word love, but, but he, he talks about how you, you can't stop entrepreneurs even as everybody laughs at him because mm -hmm. he's just charging forward. He's doing what he does. And you think of someone like, like Steve Jobs who um, was, by most accounts, a fairly insufferable guy because he was obsessed, right? Yeah. He was obsessed, and he, he wasn't just 
responding to uh, market signals where, where consumers were saying, you know what, I need an iPhone. Because they didn't know they needed an iPhone. They had right. no idea. I love that. I love that story about him. And, and that is just, that just sums up every kind of great entrepreneur there is. Yeah. They see things that, that other people don't see. Yeah, it's not, it's not about yeah. making money. <clears throat> no, and it's not a formula either. Yeah. Any more than love is a formula. You know, I mean, like when we fall in love, it, it happens in the strangest ways and unexpected ways. And it, it obsesses us and possesses us. I can imagine that, that Mises did understand this, actually. He was, a, you know, he was a, a very much of a student of Freud, uh, who is one of my favorite uh, anarch- liberal anarchists in history. I, I love reading Freud. You know, was, um, Mises read a lot of Freud in preparation for was, his... Was Freud uh, part of the Vienna Circle? Yeah. Well, he was, he was a, a part of that milieu, but yeah. Uh, yeah, he was part of the Vienna Circle, but not really necessarily Mises' circle. But when Mises wrote his book, uh, Socialism, in, in 1922, Freud was in the air. You know, everybody was going to Freud for psychotherapy and that sort of thing. But um, there's a collection of articles that... Freud wrote called uh, Civilization and Its Discontents that really affected Mises' view on, on, on the family. And uh, if you read enough Freud, you, you begin to see that there's a strange overlap with yeah. Mises and Freud on, on many, uh, many things. And I'm really tired of Freud being put, put down, I must say. I, I, I adore his writing. I, th- I think he's just fantastic. Yeah. So let's, um, let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about... Um, the new platform, you and a mutual friend of ours, Ed Stringham, and a number of, of very smart economists are revitalizing the American Institute for Economic Research. <laughs> Tell me about the project. Thank you so much for asking, and thank you for saying Edward Stringham's name, because you know he and I have been friends for, for so long, and he took on this, this project, and just... I mean, someday I'm going to write. In fact, I, I must tell you, I've written written a secret history of his uh, presidency, actually, <laughs> and I'll I'll uh, distribute it at some point in history. But that uh, that man is is heroic. What he did at AIR. But American Institute for Economic Research was founded by E. C. Harwood. He was a very interesting guy. He was a professor of not economics but but engineering at MIT. And in 1928, he kind of came up with an Austrian-style theory of the business cycle. This is not boring. Uh, and then in 1933, he, like many Americans, was just appalled at what FDR did to, to the uh, to money and banking. I mean, FDR got elected president. His first action was to legalize beer. Okay, that was good. Good start, yeah. right? I'm, I'm, I'm all in on that. <laughs> right. And in fact, there's some evidence that, that that was a major reason why he got elected in the first place. So he yeah. fil- f- uh, fulfilled that campaign promise. But then he confiscated everybody's gold, shut, uh, shut down the banks, uh, depreciated the dollar, and E.C. Harwood was appalled. Uh, E.C. Harwood was a student of ben- Benjamin Anderson and uh, J.B. Clark and, um, and the American marginalist tradition and decided he needed a think tank to study, research, and educate Americans about, about economics. And so he founded the American Institute for Economic Research in 1933. Then it was in Boston, based in, at MIT. And he went off to war. And the institute did very, very well. It was the, it was the second think tank in America and the first market-based research institute in, uh, in America, rooted in this, this passion for sound money and what Harwood called pure freedom. And pe- people don't understand this, but but he, he and Keynes had a huge 
correspondence back and forth, like arguing constantly about economic theory. Keynes was this big opponent of laissez-faire and, and a guy who disparaged the gold standard, disparaged sound money, and disparaged, by the way, free trade. That's a very interesting point about Keynes. He oh, was interesting. Really, he was against uh, free trade and was against uh, GATT after the war. He fought the liber- liberalism. I mean, he wasn't liberal at all. He was, he was against the liberals. E.C. Harwood was one of the champions um, who was against Smoot-Hawley for sound money, for free trade, for liberalism, classical liberalism. And so he and Keynes had this huge correspondence. E.C.R. was a big deal. And then uh, in 1946, he took over this, this inc- incredible uh, mansion that where AIER is currently located that was built originally in 1904 by George Pearson and his wife, these second-generation Gilded Age uh, aristocrats. They're not aristocrats. How, how would you call it? They're, you know, they made their money in, in industry, so it's a meritocracy, essentially. But uh, those two were two of 25 Americans who died on the Lusitania, which is the very fancy boat that yeah. was... That, uh, was um, sunk by a, a, a German um, a German attack and and began the the Great War of World War One, and so the mansion was uh, abandoned and then it was taken over by um, the Kuhnleys in 1928. They went bankrupt in, in the Great Depression, so the entire place was over overgrown. It was unlived in between 1934 and 1946, and when Harwood moved in. And started this great post-war project of reviving liberalism in the United States. And and he, he was a major, major figure. And it's very strange to me that he was forgotten. And what, what year was this? Well, he, he uh, AIR moved into Great Barrington in 1940. I guess they were shopping in 1945, 1946. Yeah. And then... And then Leonard Reed, who founded the American uh, founded Foundation for Economic Education, brought an entourage to Great Barrington to figure out what was going on yeah. there, see what an institute was like, what it should do, what kind of newsletters it should write, what kind of principles it should have. Went back to Irvington on Hudson, founded Fee. So, AIR was the original founding uh, market think tank, and that in America. That, uh, that was particularly entrepreneurial in the sense we were just talking about, yeah, because God, yeah. these were the darkest days. Yeah. You had fascism on the right, yeah, and you had hardcore socialism, Marxism on the left, and you were so liberalism right was marginalized. You were so right about that. Anybody who does research in the history of ideas, uh, digging through the 1930s, will be shocked. Everybody discounted freedom, freedom, markets, commercial exchange it was all just deprecated. Uh, it, people thought that the future consisted of, of uh, socialism, fascism, or some managerial statism in between. But our ideas were, were, were lost to history. But E.C. Harwood uh, really saw that they could be revived. And he and just a handful of others uh, helped um, revive the, the ideas of liberalism that actually, after World War II, began to really take, take effect really began to take hold. There was just a brief dark period. Between, I would say, like 1931 or so and about 1948. That was a terrible period of history. But I really admire Harwood for being, and and Leonard Reed and, and Mises and Hayek, and there's a bunch of these heroes that really saw through the fog. You know, they saw that. It was a lonely time. Every Everyone was laughing at them. Maybe this inspired Mises' quote. Um, 
but all of you youngsters have repopulated AIER, and then there's a there's yeah. a there's a strong Austrian certainly pro market sense there. Yeah. Um, but it's it's this is not an academic enterprise. You're 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 trying to reach uh, everybody. everybody. Uh, that was Harwood's goal to reach everybody. Very friendly towards. Um, serious, deep scholarly research, yeah. but also passionate about reaching intelligent people who, in all walks of life. I mean, you ha- they have to go together. There's also, I like, I like the spirit of AIR is not about gaming the system. We're not trying to trick anybody into believing our ideology. <laughs> I don't believe in that anymore, and it, if I ever did. I think sincerity and, and truth radicalism and science like these are not incompatible ideals you can put them together as long as you root your enterprise in a in a sense of confidence in, in ideas um attachment to, to to moral principle and respect for for research and truth uh, i think you can put all that together and I, I i see that coming together at air right now i mean in the course of one year we'll have published 50 books yeah. You know, we've revived, uh, you know, you see the social media happening. We've got conferences going on really all over the world through the Bastiat Society, which Ed acquired, you know, early in his tenure, the Sound Money Project. We've got things going on just constantly. It's just, it's wild. It, Most it, importantly, and uh, I'm showing my biases here, but um, there is apparently a video coming out, a, <gasps> a rap video. Yeah. Tell us Jesus about Marks, that. Uh, just got back from the filming in San Antonio. Um, there, there were two early rap videos that had a big impact on you and me, uh, and, and Keynes and 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 uh, Hayek. Hayek versus uh, yeah, Keynes. Yeah, put out by John uh, John Papalis. So AIR made is making possible this great battle between Marx and Mises, and I tell you, it is really something. I mean, I don't know if you've seen. You haven't seen the lyrics. No, I haven't no, seen. It. We've been keeping them under kind of lock and key. We don't, I'm not. It's usually not my way. Yeah. But but uh, but they are so great um i think this is really going to define everything for everybody and it's it's really it's interesting because marx comes across as kind of hip and kind of i mean there's a certain sense in which he wins the battle yeah you know because he's got more popular things to say but mises um i would say wins it intellectually but marx wins it emotionally until the end i don't know you just have to wait and see but um well i'll be biased in the video i play yeah of course right um, but in the video, I play a, a wealthy patron, you know, and, and, I, and I try to save um, uh, the other wealthy, wealthy patron, Ed Stringham, from being thrown off the balcony by Karl Marx himself. <laughs> so, well, it's really something. You know, when push comes to thug, strip away all of the pretense, he's a, he's a thug. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, that's right. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful project, and an expensive undertaking, but um, I think it's going to make a difference. I mean, as you know, we, we live in a funny world today. There's so much data just dumping down in the world, trillions of bits of information. Just getting attention for anything these days is very difficult, um, and it takes, you know, a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of focus and a lot of dedication. Um, but I think this video is going to do very well, even in our current setting. Well, I'm, uh, you've heard me say this a thousand times. I couldn't be more optimistic about the ability to connect with young people. I, I don't freak out so much about the scare polls that show that they're more attracted to socialism than capitalism. Yeah, I don't even like that word. It's, capitalism isn't about capital. No, it's not. I mean, it can be, but 
It doesn't it's, have to be. It's apples and peas. Look, for me, markets are about love, as, yeah. as, the, mar- as, the, as the book says. Markets love you. Well, you should love it back. And people have made fun of me for this, but I, I think it's I think it's just true. And and look, Matt, you and I are dealing in th- with the with the greatest realm there is. It's the realm of ideas. And you can look at countless examples in history when things seemed terrible, but a handful of courageous people really stood out with sincerity, and conviction, and a willingness to fight hard and stand up to. All the Twitter trolls or whatever, they've always existed. They've always been with us. It's not unique. Push through and, and persuade people yeah. of certain truths. And, and in the end, we win. I was just researching about uh, Cordell Hull and his uh, outrage about Smoot-Hawley in, in 1930. And he said, damn it, I'm going to dedicate my whole life to free trade. And sure enough, his students and acolytes, you know, uh, brought us the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which sounds like a technical document in 1948. No, it freed billions of people from oppression. Billions. It gave us longer lives. It, 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 it made the world rich. I mean, the th- we're sitting here today because of this one crazy guy in 1932 said, I've had enough. We're going we're gonna to bring the world together uh, through world trade. This is an important point. Ideas can make a difference. And I'm going to tell you something, um, Matt, that I think you'll appreciate. In the early years when I knew Murray Rothbard, I had just gotten out of a class in public choice. And you know what it's like to leave a class in public choice. It leaves you with the sense that the world is fixed. It's a game. There's no escaping it. The interest groups have all lined up. We're screwed. Yeah, we're screwed. The, the costs are dispersed. The Benefits are focused. Democracy is a racket. Everybody's, it's all locked down and ideas don't matter anymore. And I, as a young punk, went up to Murray Rothbard and I told him this. Can you imagine? What a jerk. Anyway, I was young. And I knew Murray well. Who's this kid? Yeah. Yeah. Murray actually loved me even then, but I will never forget the look on his face. I knew him for 10 years, the only time he ever got angry at me. And his teeth began to rub together, and I'd never seen Murray this way. Rub together, and he just got, like, began to vibrate, and he just said fiercely, with, with conviction and passion, he said, Jeffrey, you need to stop thinking this way, and you definitely need to start preaching this message, because it's 100% wrong. Ideas or what drive history forward, not your public choice rationale and your lockdown democracies and all your f- crazy theories. That's ridiculous. The only way we've ever had progress is through, is through ideas. Ideas can break down any establishment. Ideas can break through the, the, the toughest state, the, the biggest guns, you know, the, the biggest militaries, um, all the interest groups. They, they, they die before truth. If we can just get that right, then we can make a difference in this world. That's what he said. And he said that to me. And I was shocked. And I wasn't sure he was right. And he died in 1995. But everything that's happened since then is, I I think he was right. I have to believe that that's right. I think he is right. I think he was right to rebuke me, actually. I think he's correct. We've got the best weapon of all. We can win this. But we have to do it the right way, as Murray did, as Adam Smith did, as Hayek did, 
as E.C. Harwood did, with sincerity, truth, passion, love. That's the only way we're going to win. Love trumps hate. Ah, oh, that's good. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.